The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is September 18th, 2019, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the General of the Army Omar Nelson Bradley Memorial Lecture. Tonight's special event is the first lecture of the 51st year of the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. The book for today's lecture is on sale in the gift shop and behind the uh, lecture hall if they haven't already sold out. All proceeds from the book sales do go to support the Army Heritage Center Foundation and everything they do to, uh, to support what we do here at the AHEC. Um, of course, we will have a book signing and a meet and greet after the lecture. And now please welcome Dr. Conrad Crane of the Historical Services Division here at the AHEC to introduce tonight's speaker. Yeah, this is, I think, the third time that I've had the honor to introduce Rick at one of these venues. So I'm trying to figure out what can I say different this time. So I tried to do a little extra research on him. Uh, Rick is... Uh, an Army brat, was actually born to an Army family in, in Germany, traveled all over the world with his family. Uh, the thing that struck me, though, that uh, he, he actually turned down an appointment to West Point. Now, that's not in itself what is what, what's kind of shocked me, but if he had accepted that appointment to West Point, he would have, he would have graduated in the same class that I did. The one that had, at one point, had the, the, the uh, directors of the National Security Agency, the director of the CIA, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the same time. Now, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was a guy named Marty Dempsey, who had a master's degree in English and literature. Rick Atkinson also ended up with a master's degree in English, English and literature. So what that means is, being a, if, take the political scientist part, part of this, if he had gone to West Point, he would have been chief of staff of the Army. <laughs> so what a lost opportunity that was for you. I want to just, the thing that struck me was going over the list of the awards that, that Rick has gotten. Uh, initially, I had thought that he had two Pulitzer Prizes. That's wrong. He's really got three. He had another one where he was part of a team at the Washington Post that did some investigative reporting on the D.C. Police Department. He has won the Pritzker Military Library Lifetime Writing Award, which is one all historians want because it comes with a $100,000 prize. <laughs> uh, the, but it, but it's, that's, he's done, he's, the, the latest award, he just got the Vincent J. Dooley Distinguished Teaching Fellow from the Georgia Historical Society. So this is an individual who's recognized for his writing, for his teaching, for his contributions to many different fields. Uh, <clears throat> Most historians have very much of a love-hate relationship with Rick. We admire what he's done, but we hate him for how he writes so well. <laughs> because he has set the bar so high for the rest of us that it's almost unattainable. You are indeed in for a real treat. I'm going to set the bar very high for him. 
his books are eloquent. His speeches are eloquent. He is the probably the pre, for when it comes to the talent of writing and researching, he is probably the premier historian I think today. So just setting your expectations at that level, Rick. I now give you the floor. <laughs> Good luck. Thanks, Con. <laughs> I'm sorry we were never classmates. Well, good evening. Well, thanks so much for having me here at AHEC, which um, is like a second home to me and has been for 20 years or so. Um, when I was researching my last trilogy on the Second World War and the American role in the liberation of Europe, I was here, I made 69 research trips here, usually for two or three days at a time. Uh, and uh, that was between 1999 and 2012. And along with the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, uh, this is the most important place in the world for what I was doing, and I'll always be grateful for the extraordinary help I got from the wonderful professionals who work here and over at the War College. Um, they've been uh, fabulous in every respect. Um, many of them have become my friends. Some of them are here tonight. Thank you for being here. Uh, one guy who's not here tonight is my father, Lieutenant Colonel retired Larry R. Atkinson who uh, died at the age of 94 a year ago next month. Uh, he enlisted in the Army in late 1942 after he graduated from high school. He came back from Europe in 1946. He went to Penn State, and then he went back into the Army and spent 30 years as an infantry officer. Um, he and my mom moved here in 1976 because his last active duty assignment in the Army was teaching at the War College. They lived in Boiling Springs. Uh, he was a big supporter of this place and of me. Um, and frankly, it's a little strange not to see him trundle in here tonight. Uh, before I began writing uh, narrative history full time, I was a newspaper reporter, mostly for the Washington Post. My father supported me even then. Although sometimes I think he wondered what I'd gotten myself into. I've long considered myself a recovering journalist. And that's probably best explained by a story that I once told my father about the world's first brain transplant. The night before the procedure, the doctor went into the patient's room and said, congratulations, sir. You're about to have the world's first brain transplant. You have a choice as to the kind of brain you can receive. You can have the brain of a farmer. That'll cost you $100 an ounce. Or you can have the brain of a professor of history, tenured. That'll cost you $200 an ounce. Or you can have the brain of a journalist. But that'll cost you $1,000 an ounce. The patient said, $1,000 an ounce, that's, that's outrageous. Why is it so expensive? The doctor said, do you have any idea how many journalists it takes to get an ounce of brain? <laughs> That's an easier story to tell as a recovering journalist. The last time I was here was after the publication of The Guns at Last Light, which was the third and final volume 
of my trilogy about uh, the liberation of Europe. Uh, that project took me 15 years. And even before the book came out, I was pondering what to do next. And the obvious thing would have been to pivot to the Pacific and do for that theater what I had done for the Mediterranean and Western Europe. But that would have required me to start World War II all over again at Pearl Harbor or even earlier. And that didn't have much appeal. And besides, I couldn't shake a personal fascination with a earlier war in an earlier century than I've had since I was a kid. Well, I've now completed what will be, I hope, knock wood, the first volume in another trilogy. The British are coming, opens with an extended prologue in June 1773, when King George III travels to Portsmouth on the southern coast of England for a four-day review of the Royal Navy, a fantastic proud display of military muscle precisely a decade after the creation of the first British Empire with Britain's victory in the Seven Years' War, or as we know it, the French and Indian War, over the French and the Spanish. 1773 is the year the phrase, the sun never sets on the British Empire was coined. This volume uh, then proceeds through the first 16 or 17 months of the war and ends with the two battles of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton in January 1777, which together resuscitated American hopes that had seemed all but extinguished by the end of 1776. Let me suggest that there is a lot to dislike about the Founding Fathers and the war they waged for American independence. The stirring assertion that all men are created equal did not, of course, apply to 500,000 black slaves one in five of all souls living in the 13 colonies when those fine words were written in 1776. Nor was it valid for Native Americans or women or indigents. For the eight-year duration of the American Revolution, those who remained loyal to the British crown or even those who were skeptical of armed rebellion against their government often were subjected to dreadful treatment public shaming, disenfranchisement, confiscation, beatings, torture, exile, and sometimes execution. Some were imprisoned on Hudson River scows anchored below Albany, or were lowered into an abandoned Connecticut copper mine by windlass 70 feet below ground into rock-walled cells that were known simply as hell. Partisan belligerence metastasized into civil war. John Adams later said, I would have hanged my own brother had he taken part with our enemy in the contest. Conformity, censorship, and zealotry flourished. In a defensive war waged for liberty and basic human rights, the Americans promptly invaded Canada in an attempt to win by force of arms what could not be won by blandishment and negotiation, a 14th colony. This was the first, but hardly the last, American invasion of another land on the pretext of bettering life for the invaded. The enduring image of a yeoman farmer leaving his plow in the furrow to grab his musket and go off in defense of freedom is mostly mythical. 
During the Revolution, General George Washington rarely had more than 20,000 men in his army, and often it dwindled to as few as 3,000. This in a country of two and a half million people. Especially after the martial enthusiasms roused at Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill faded in 1775, relatively few American men volunteered for military service, especially if it involved enlisting for the duration in the badly armed, badly fed, badly clothed, and often badly led American Continental Army. And yet, who would deny that the creation story of our founding remains valid, vivid, and often thrilling? Even in 2019, when national unity is elusive, when our partisan rancor seems ever more toxic, when the simple concept of truth is assailed, that story informs who we are, where we came from, what our forebears believed, and perhaps the most profound question any people can ask themselves, what they were willing to die for. Indeed, at least 25,000 Americans died for the cause, and perhaps many more. It's a larger proportion of our population to die in any American conflict other than the Civil War. So what can we learn from that ancient quarrel? First that this nation was born bickering. <laughs> Disputation is in the national genome. Second, that there are foundational truths that not only are indeed true, but are, as the Declaration of Independence insists, self-evident. Third, that leaders worthy of our enduring admiration rise to the occasion with grit and wisdom and grace. And fourth, that whatever trials beset us today, we have overcome greater perils, existential perils before. This should be of great comfort. We're the beneficiaries of an enlightened political heritage handed down to us from that revolutionary generation after many subsequent struggles. It includes strictures on how to divide power and how to keep it from concentrating in the hands of those who think primarily of themselves. We cannot let that heritage slip away. We cannot allow it to be taken away. We cannot be oblivious to this priceless gift or the hundreds of thousands who have given their lives over the last 240-some years to affirm and sustain it. Now, the American Revolution was not a war between regimes or dynasties fought for territory or the usual commercial advantages, but rather it was an improvised struggle between two peoples of a common heritage who had been gradually sundered by divergent values and conflicting visions of what the world could be. The Americans eventually won by embracing fewer strategic misconceptions than the British did. Certainly the rebels could be wrong-headed in believing they had greater economic leverage over the mother country than they actually possessed, for example. Or in caricaturing King George III, who sat on his throne for 60 years and was shrewder, more complex, and more admirable than the overbearing ninny who still dominates 
our imaginations, and who even tonight somewhere is mincing across the stage of Hamilton. <laughs> Yet George and his ministers made three critical miscalculations. First, that most colonists remain loyal to the crown, notwithstanding troublemakers in New England capable of rousing a rabble. Two, that firmness, including military firepower, would intimidate the obstreperous and restore harmony. And three, that failure to reassert London's authority in America would eventually unstitch the newly created British Empire, encouraging insurrections in Ireland, Canada, the Sugar Islands of the West Indies, India. It's an 18th century version of the domino theory that would propel us into Vietnam 150 years later. Britain also underestimated the difficulty of waging a protracted war across 3,000 miles of open ocean in the age of sail for eight years, as it turned out. I don't need to tell this crowd, but expeditionary warfare, whether waged in the 18th century in North America or in the 21st century in Central Asia, is among the most difficult of all martial enterprises. The British Army in the Revolution, unable to gather food and forage in the American countryside without being ambushed, relied largely on provisions shipped from English and Irish ports. But of 40 transport vessels dispatched across the Atlantic in the winter of 1775-76, only eight of those 40 reached the king's forces in Boston directly. The rest were blown by gales back to Britain or blown to the West Indies or intercepted by rebel marauders. Of 550 Lincolnshire sheep carried aboard ships that actually made it to Boston, that breed was deemed the fittest to undergo the rigors of transatlantic travel. Only 40 of those 550 sheep arrived alive in Boston. 290 hog ship, just 74 arrived alive. Most of the 5,200 barrels of flour in one shipment arrived rancid. When the British moved to New York in the summer of 1776 and requested 950 horses to pull their artillery carriages and their supply wagons, 412 of the 950 horses that were sent from Britain died at sea during the voyage. Scores of others were ruined beyond use, even though they arrived alive in New York. Similar difficulties plagued the British for years. Logistics is always hard in war, right? I've personally seen how hard in Somalia and Bosnia and Iraq and Afghanistan, and so have you. Even when the Americans were fighting on their home turf in the revolution, they faced enormous difficulties. Of 75 official letters that General Washington wrote in January and February 1776, half mentioned munition shortages, often in pleading, fretful terms, especially gunpowder which he just called the thing. It's difficult to make musket balls without lead, 
And by the summer of 1776, the Americans were desperately short of the stuff. In New York, more than 100 tons of lead, of lead weights from fishing nets and clocks and window sash cords were collected to make bullets, along with lead from downspouts and window glass canes and pewter dishes. Without salt, armies and navies couldn't stockpile the meat and fish needed to move anywhere. Two bushels of salt, more than 100 pounds, were needed to cure 1,000 pounds of pork. Before the war, Americans imported 15 million bushels of the stuff a year, about half from the West Indies and half from Britain and Southern Europe. But when the shooting started, the British trade embargo strangled two-thirds of that supply. And to encourage salt works along the coast, pamphlets were printed with salt-making recipes. John Adams wrote, all the old women and children are gone down to the Jersey Shore to make salt. But 400 gallons of seawater are needed to boil off one bushel of salt. And that required enormous stacks of firewood. Virginia spent more than 6,000 pounds, a huge sum of money in those days, to build evaporation ponds along the Chesapeake Bay. But they collected a total of 50 bushels. It's probably the most expensive salt in the history of salt. <laughs> Yet those problems, substantial as they were, hardly matched Britain's problems. The 1,000 tons of bread required to feed the British Army in New York each month often arrived from depots in Cork on the southern coast of Ireland, moldy and infested with Irish rats. And there's no rat as nasty as an Irish rat. <laughs> and they soon infested storehouses, British storehouses on Staten Island. For the winter of 1776-77, the British needed 64,000 cords of firewood, 70 tons of candles. The daily allowance of a gill of rum for each redcoat, a gill was five ounces. It's about a gallon a month per man which gives you an idea of inebriation problems in the British Army. That shipment of rum took an enormous amount of shipping space. The British Navy Board needed 400 transports and victualling ships to move and to supply the large force in New York. It was triple the tonnage that had been used at the peak of the Seven Years' War, which was a global war. Let me talk for a moment about George our last king. He's an intriguing adversary. Queen Elizabeth II only recently opened up to outside scrutiny the Georgian papers, which she owns, as part of a project to catalog and digitize the papers from all four Georges who became king in the 18th and 19th centuries. There are 350,000 pages, mostly from the reign of George III, most of them previously unpublished. And I was among the first in allowed to have a look. I was there for the whole month of April 2016 at Windsor Castle, just west of London, where the papers are stored. Every morning, I would show my badge at the Henry VIII gate and show it again at the Norman gate. And then I would climb 102 stone steps and 21 wooden stairs to the garret of the Round Tower, begun by William the Conqueror in the 11th century. And there are the papers in gorgeous, oversized red binders. 
George was his own secretary until late in life when he began to go blind. And he not only wrote his correspondence himself, he made the copies himself. And as you pull through these pages, there's a tactile sense of being in his presence. Among other things, he's a great list maker. Lists of British garrisons abroad from 1764 to 1775, of Royal Navy vessels under construction in various shipyards, of all his regiments in America, with a number of officers, musicians, and rank and file in columns with his arithmetic scratchings in the margin as he does his sums. George copied out his own recipes for cough syrup. Rosemary, rice, vinegar, brown sugar, all boiled in silver. Remember, all boiled in silver. Recipes for insecticide, wormwood, vinegar, lime, swine's fat, quicksilver. He was interested in everything from music and astronomy to horology, the study of time, to the use of manures in agronomy. They called him Farmer George. He'd married an obscure, drab German princess, Charlotte, as in Charlottesville, Virginia, Charlotte, North Carolina. She learned to play God Save the King on the harpsichord during her voyage to England from Germany. They married six hours after they met. And he had the marriage bedroom decorated with 700 yards of blue damask and large basins of goldfish because nothing says I love you like a bowl of goldfish. <laughs> the happy union proved fertile. She produced children with lunar regularity. Eventually to number 15. And we see in his personal correspondence that George is a caring father. He's invested in the rearing of his kids. And through all this, he's trying to figure out the proper course for the British Empire, for the monarchy, and for his people. He's easy enough to dislike, but impossible, I find, to detest or simply dismiss as a reactionary autocrat. Now, the war he chooses to wage, and he is driving the train. He is the hardest of the hardliners. That war is brutal, bloody, and often savage. Unlike modern war, of course, killing in the 18th century is usually intimate, at very close range, often with a bayonet. That's partly because 18th century muskets were mostly inaccurate beyond 80 yards and mostly hopeless beyond 100 yards. Scholars have calculated that in the fights at Lexington Concord and the British retreat to Boston on April 19, 1775, the first day of the war, the Americans fired at least 75,000 rounds. But only one bullet in every 300 actually hit a red coat. The shot heard around the world probably missed. <laughs> Battlefield wisdom held that it took a man's weight in bullets to kill him. And in the American Revolution, that's not far wrong. On the other hand, masked musket fire by clusters of men firing in volleys, sending swarms of one-ounce lead slugs downrange at 1,000 feet a second. That could be devastating. A man five feet, eight inches tall, a little shorter than I am, 
had an exterior surface of 2,550 square inches, of which 1,000 square inches were exposed to gunfire when he was facing an enemy frontally at close range. Given the primitive inadequacy of 18th century medicine, which is hardly worthy of the name, if you're hitting the torso, you have more than a 50% chance of dying. If you're hitting the head, your chances of survival are even less. By the way, later studies by the British Army demonstrated that soldiers wearing conspicuous red uniforms were more than twice as likely to be shot in combat as those wearing muted gray, greens, blues, and grays. Duh. American marksmen, especially those few with rifles which were more accurate than muskets but were harder to load and couldn't carry a bayonet, those marksmen learned to target the brightest of the red coats because they were usually, they were almost vermilion in hue. They were usually worn by officers who could afford the more expensive dyes that made those coats pop. It was like wearing a sign that said, shoot me. The Battle of Bunker Hill on June 17, 1775, the British captured roughly a square mile of rebel-held territory at a cost of over 1,000 casualties, including 226 British dead. The British are coming is not something that Paul Revere called while galloping through the Middlesex countryside in the very early morning of April 19, 1775. That wouldn't have made sense to people who at that moment still considered themselves to be British. What he's quoted as shouting over and over again is, the regulars are coming out, meaning the regular British army coming out of Boston. But I use the British are coming as a title because it's a metaphor for what those first couple years of the war are really about. The British are coming relentlessly with their ferocious professional army with nearly half of the greatest navy the world has ever seen, with 30,000 German mercenaries, Hessians. They're coming to kill your men, rape your women, plunder your homes, and in some cases, burn your towns to ashes. It's a dire thing. Well, those are some of the nuts and bolts of 18th century warfare, but what of the emotional guts of the revolution? That's what still moves us, stirs our pride, makes us feel that those men and women of a dozen generations ago have something to say to us. Why is that? Certainly that revolutionary generation can seem so distant as to be almost a foreign people. If irony and skepticism are the twin lenses of modern consciousness, the revolutionaries often seem archaic. They are much less ironic and skeptical than their 21st century descendants. They speak English, of course, but they have their own argo, idiom, their own slang. For example, passing counterfeit money, widely practiced in the 18th century, was known as shoving the queer. Someone who died took heaven by the way. British soldiers in Boston, by the way, sometimes referred to Americans derisively as Jonathans. But those are minor differences. We rightly admire those Americans for their endurance, their pertinacity, their sacrifice, not only displayed by men serving in the ranks, 
but by others swept up in the fraught events of those times. Lois Peters of Connecticut hadn't seen her husband, Captain Nathan Peters, in months when she wrote him, pray come home as soon as possible. A visit from you at any time would be agreeable. <laughs> Meanwhile, she would harvest the corn, sell their oxen for enough cash to keep the family saddlery solvent, sew him a shirt and take great pleasure doing it, she wrote him, and keep faith with the future. She signed her letters, your loving wife until dead. <laughs> General Nathaniel Green, Quaker anchorsmith from Rhode Island, makes one of the worst operational decisions of the war by leaving 3,000 American troops exposed and vulnerable at Fort Washington on Manhattan Island. Where in the space of eight hours on November 16, 1776, they're trapped and killed or captured. This is during a period when American generalship is often characterized by miscalculation, misfortune, imprudence, and deficient military skills. But Green picks himself up, he takes a deep breath, and he writes to Cotty, his wife, the virtue of the Americans is put to a trial. I'm hearty and well amidst all the fatigues and hardships. Be of good courage. Don't be distressed. All things will turn out for the best. Be of good courage. He's speaking to us. Speaking to you and you, and he's certainly speaking to me. The sheer drama of the revolution keeps it compelling and often thrilling. From the bloodletting at Bunker Hill, where one in every eight British officers to be killed in eight years of war would die in four hours. To the skin of the teeth escaped by Washington and his army in the fog across the East River in late August 1776 after a terrible drubbing on Long Island. And beyond the battlefield, the theatrical power and pathos of the conflict surely outruns any dramatist's imagination. The abrupt arrival of the septuagenarian Benjamin Franklin in Paris in December 1776 to woo the French absolute monarchy into an alliance with radical Republicans. The 100,000 smallpox deaths in North America from 1775 to 1782. Those white men sitting in Philadelphia in the summer of 1776, lashing at horseflies with their handkerchiefs while carving up Thomas Jefferson's draft declaration to make it shorter and much better. The many American families, Ben Franklin's among them, ripped apart by irreconcilable political differences. If the central figures in our creation story have frequently been embalmed in reverence. They nonetheless remain beguiling, worthy of perpetual study and often of emulation. Washington is a case in point. Yes, he owned more than 300 slaves when he died in 1799 at Mount Vernon. You cannot square that circle morally. He demonstrated shortcomings as a tactical commander at Long Island, Fort Washington, and on other battlefields. The man who proverbially 
could never tell a lie, sure could prevaricate. <laughs> Washington's carping about his troops, his officers, and his lot in life. I distrust everything, he grumbled in 1776. Transforms the demigod into a sometimes petulant mortal. Yet great responsibility enlarges him. We cannot ask for more from our leaders. We must demand it of our leaders. He rightly embodies the sacrifice of personal interest to a greater good, as well as other Republican virtues, small r, probity, dignity, moral stamina, incorruptibility, traits that re remain true north for every citizen today, traits which we should demand in our leaders. The first couple years of the revolution that I describe in this book certainly brought bitter lessons for Washington that will be familiar to some of you. That war was rarely linear, preferring a path of fits and starts, ups and downs, triumphs and cataclysms. That only battle could reveal those with the necessary dark heart for killing, years of killing that only those with the requisite stamina, aptitude, and luck, 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 the trait that Napoleon most cherished in his generals, only those with those traits would be able to see it through. And finally, the hardest of, hard, of war's hard truths in 1776, that for a new nation to live, young men must die, often alone, usually in pain, and sometimes to no obvious purpose. Washington, more than anyone, was responsible for ordering those men to their deaths. His faith gave others faith. His strength made others strong. As commanding general of the Continental Army, the indispensable man leading the indispensable institution, he also demonstrated a shrewd understanding of the refractory, independent people known collectively as Americans. Washington wrote in 1777, a people unused to restraint must be led. They will not be drove. Well, lesser personalities largely lost to history speak to Americans in the 21st century of constancy and an antique patriotism. Heaven only knows what may be my fate, Captain John McPherson wrote in a last letter to his father before being killed at Quebec. I experience no reluctance in this cause to venture a life which I consider is only lent to be used when my country demands it. Likewise, Lieutenant Samuel Cooper wrote his wife, the dangers we are to encounter I know not. But it shall never be said to my children, your father was a coward. He too died at Quebec. Even Benedict Arnold, perhaps the finest battle captain on either side early in the war before his subsequent issues, <laughs> wrote after being shot in the leg in Canada, I am in the way of duty and I know no fear. 
Some years ago, the distinguished historian John Shy, who taught at the University of Michigan for eons, wrote that the Civil War, like every other major event in American history, including the Second World War, has a tragic human two-sided quality that the revolution seems to lack. The whole complex of revolutionary events takes on a smooth, self-contained character that makes getting the right emotional grip on the subject very difficult. My premise is that tragedy is the bedrock of every war, because every war is about young men, and now sometimes young women, dying young. My ambition has been to find that emotional grip, as Professor Shai put it, to revive the tragic human multi-sided quality that saturates the American saga from 1775 to 1783. So we see Lieutenant Edward Hull, a young Scottish officer in the 43rd Regiment of Foot, shot at Northbridge in Concord, shot again during the British retreat to Boston, captured by the Americans in agony from three bullet wounds, sucking on an orange donated by a compassionate rebel. He lingers for nearly two weeks in a twilight of pain and remorse before he too takes heaven, by the way. We see Mary Pierce, the widow of a private killed at Bunker Hill while fighting with the Massachusetts militia as she petitions the Commonwealth for precisely five pounds and 12 shillings in compensation for her husband's lost coat, trousers, stockings, shoes, buckles, silk handkerchief, knife, and tobacco box. Or General Richard Montgomery, in the assault on Quebec, hit by grape shot in both thighs and then mortally through the face. His effects were auctioned off to his officers a couple days after his death, item by item. Two volumes of Polybius, Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language, a buffalo skin and clothes brush, bought incidentally by Captain Aaron Burr and a wardrobe including ruffled shirts, holland waistcoats, and a pair of tetons, all bought by Benedict Arnold. Or we see Illinois, the island of nuts. It's a couple hundred acres in the Richelieu River just above the New York border, where thousands of American soldiers retreating from Canada in June 1776 jammed a malarial hell half of them suffering from smallpox, dysentery, typhus, or some other god-awful malady, infested with lice and maggots. One doctor wrote, we had nothing to give them. It broke my heart, and I wept until I had not more power to weep. And we see Matthew Patton of Bedford, New Hampshire, whose son John had survived a gunshot wound at Bunker Hill, but did not survive Illinois. Mr. Patton wrote simply in his diary, I got an account of my John's death of the smallpox at Canada. He was 24 years and 31 days old. The historian Bruce Catton considered the American Civil War a redemptive tragedy. Surely the same can be said of the American Revolution. It embodied the enduring aspirations of an idealistic people and brought forth a nation abounding with a sense of destiny. No wonder the world was agog 
The cause of America, wrote the essayist Thomas Paine, is the cause of all mankind. Even now, the war for independence offers clues to our national temperament. It remains a, a bright mirror in which we see traits that fashion the American character from ingenuity and resilience to brutality and pugnacity. We've come far in almost two and a half centuries in power, diversity, tolerance, and sheer scale. But in some respects, those ancestors are nearer than we know. Their existential struggle churned up issues that perplex us to this day, including individual liberty versus collective security, the proper limits on executive power, the obligations of citizenship, and the elusive quest for a more equitable society. The tacit primal question of 1776 persists in 2019. Who do we want to be? Democracy is never a thing done, the poet and librarian of Congress, Archibald MacLeish, told us. Democracy is always something a nation must be doing. Even Jefferson's declaration, our foundational secular scripture, we hold these truths to be self-evident, is dynamic, never a thing done, something a nation must be doing. The great Yale historian Edmund Morgan wrote that the creed of equality did not give men and women equality, but invited them to claim it, invited them not to know their place and keep it, but to seek and demand a better place. The American Revolution lasted 3,089 days, and the result was epical and enduring, the creation of the American Republic among mankind's most remarkable achievements. Nearly 90,000 more days have elapsed since those horsefly-swatting men asserted a human birthright of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Keeping faith with those who fought, suffered, and died for the principles we profess to still cherish requires more than a nodding acquaintance with them, more than a perfunctory acknowledgment of their struggles. For better and for worse, their story is our story. Their fight remains our fight. Thanks so much again for having me here today. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have plenty of time for questions and answers. Please do remember we have a big crowd tonight, so if you have a question, raise your hand, and please, one question at a time. We can always come back to you if there's enough time. We'll start right here in the middle. How would you evaluate the value of ugly truths versus the romantic mythology? I like the romantic poets. As a former English literature graduate student, uh, but as a historian, I prefer truths ugly or otherwise. I mean, I think uh, in terms of understanding our national heritage, understanding our national 
uh, destiny that uh, looking at it with the bark stripped off is the only way that we can do it legitimately. There's been a lot of myth-making over the last 240 years, obviously, and some of that is useful. Myths have their purpose in, uh, in uh, any people's uh, culture, but uh, my belief is that in the 21st century, it's important to understand what happened, who did what, what they really believed, what they failed to do. That includes understanding the role of those 500,000 black slaves. They left almost no footprint. And understanding who they were and what role they played in the revolution is critical. And you can go down the list. So, you know, that's an easy one for me. Rick. Uh, it would not have to be argued that your sense and use of our language, factual research, imagination, timing, and humor are surpassed by few. Very few speakers and researchers are their own great straight men. <laughs> what would you say are the one or two things that you have experienced or that might have crossed your path in your life that may have made you who you are? I'm an army brat. Um, you know, 18 years and there's no damn pension. <laughs> uh, but having grown up in it, uh, understanding the culture and speaking the language and um, understanding the history, and you know, I grew up in army posts in the 50s and 60s when World War II was still very much a presence. Uh, that certainly uh, gave me an impetus to write the last trilogy. Uh, the relationship between the Republic and its army is, to me, the, the essential question. That's, you know, this is book number seven. They've all been about war. They've all been about our army. Uh, and they've all fundamentally been about the relationship between the Republic and the army. There's no more important institutional relationship uh, in our country's history. It's been critical to the growth and success of the country, and it will always be critical to the growth and success of the country. So I think, I frankly think I have a leg up by having grown up in it to, to, uh, to some extent. You've studied now the revolution a lot, the uh, the American soldier, the American leader in the revolution in the army there. Same for World War II, perhaps uh, you studied it in Desert Storm. How would you describe the qualities of the American soldier and the American leaders, revolution, World War II, and try to take examples from today if you can. And do you see any changes in today's generation of soldier and leader compared to World War II and the revolution? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm telling you something you already know. First of all, the quality of the soldier and the officer today is so immeasurably better than it was in the Revolution or even in World War II. Um, I mean, let's remember that in World War II, for example, we put 16.1 million into uniform 
out of a country of 130 million. Not all of them were Audie Murphy. <laughs> uh, it did something that is vitally missing today. It meant that everyone had someone they loved in harm's way. Everyone had skin in the game. Today, you know, country of 330 million people, maybe 2 million if you count every guardsman and reservist in the country, almost no one has skin in the game. That's a problem for democracy. And uh, I think it's a, a problem that's not addressed by anyone in a meaningful way. I don't know quite what the solution is. It's not to resume the draft, but maybe some form of national service. If you look at the, to go back to your question, if you look at the quality of the soldiers in the revolution, after that initial first blush of enthusiasm passes, the guys who filled the ranks for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part in the Continental Army, are kind of the dregs of the society. Um, they come into the Army for college bonuses. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> they come into the army for the cash. And it's partly because they're having trouble finding jobs elsewhere. They tend to be unattached, either to families or to their communities. Frequently, they're relatively recent immigrants to the country. Uh, it's quite different than the mythology, as I mentioned, of that yeoman farmer, the merchant who leaves his shop. Um, it's, it's an army in the last several years of the revolution that is um, simply not what the myth mythology suggests. The quality of the officers, all right. So one of the things Washington has going for him is that he has a very good eye for subordinate talent. So somehow he recognizes that an overweight Boston bookseller who's 25 years old named Henry Knox, who doesn't really have much military experience, had always been out there you know, on the, on the common every once in a while in Boston firing pop guns. He's going to be the father of American artillery. <laughs> and, and Chuck Allen is the grandfather. <laughs> uh, he recognizes, Washington does, that, that Quaker anchor smith, Nathaniel Green, who uh, at the beginning of the revolution is a private in the militia. He's been kicked out of the Quakers because he's, he's called to arms. Uh, and uh, he, he runs for lieutenant of his company. And he's got, uh, by all accounts, a kind of odd gait. He's got a little bit of a limp. And the company says, oh, you'd look weird walking at the front of the company in parade. He can't get elected lieutenant. Well, the Rhode Island Assembly, he's got some political pull. They make him a brigadier general. <laughs> he goes from private to brigadier general overnight. And Washington, again, recognizes that this guy has something going for him, and he'll be one of the great battle captains in the history of the Army. Extraordinary guy. So there are those people, and it's a substantial list, but for the most part, the, a, a lot of the officers are duds. 
Uh, and it's Washington is tearing his hair out. If he's worried about the thing, gunpowder, he's even more worried about the quality of his officers. He'll be worried about it for the whole revolution. Um, so, you know, who worries about the quality of the officers in the United States Army today? Well, the chief, he thinks about it, but, uh, you know, anybody who knows the Army doesn't worry that we have got inferior officers leading the United States Army. We don't. They're really good. Uh, so that's a huge change in evolution. Um, and uh, you know, over the course of the 240 intervening years between then and now, we've been through a lot. Collectively, the Army has been through a lot. Um, uh, the thing that worries me most, though, is this sense that we are not committed as a nation to your fate. Uh, that, you know, there's an attitude, yeah, you know, halftime of a Redskins or Eagles game, we'll cheer the section that's got some veterans there, uh, and we'll say, thank you for your service, uh, but so what? That's nice. It's not insincere, but it's not what we need, in my estimation. Uh, and the national leadership needs to take this very seriously, again, in my judgment. Um, sir, knowing as you do the numerous ideas often conflicting that went into the Constitution and before that the Declaration of Independence, how should we really interpret these documents and what they mean for America today? Should we see them as an ideal or should we be looking more into the minds that came, they came from? Well, depends which Supreme Court justice <laughs> you're talking to. My personal belief, not as a constitutional scholar or much less a, a, a jurist, is that um, democracy is a thing a nation must be doing. And that includes the foundational documents that, have, that are the predicate for uh, our democracy, for our republic for our system of government, um, and that uh, these are documents that are not written in stone, that are not immutable, that do not have one meaning only in the mind of James Madison. And if you don't know what James Madison was thinking, you can't possibly understand uh, what the Constitution says, for example. That makes no sense to me at all. Um, you know, I think that it's important for people to understand that those documents speak to us. It's, it's not just, um, you know, a few platitudes written on, on uh, a parchment. Uh, it is, they are. A, uh, a set of precepts and, and foundational truths and guiding principles that are vital and have been vital to the growth and success of the country. And um, to the extent that, you know, 99% of Americans, if you say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and they'd say, uh, is that Taylor Swift? 
That's a problem. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's incumbent on all of us who are older to ensure that uh, the curriculum in the schools and that, th that these documents are made to mean something to younger generations. Uh, to me, the way to do it is to do it through storytelling and to do it through character and to remind them very bluntly, he died for you. She died for you. Because uh, that's really what it comes down to frequently. Kids get that. They understand that. And I think making that connection between sacrifice, commitment, uh, national endeavor, and the foundational precepts that you're talking about can be done. Hang on a second. He's coming. Okay. Your access to the George III papers, uh, what kind of hoops did you have to jump through? I assume it was more than sending Queen Elizabeth an email and showing up at Windsor Castle <laughs> one day. Uh, she's very prompt with their email responses. <laughs> I'll tell you how it happened, because it's one of those serendipitous things. Um, I live in Washington, and I often go to the Society of the Cincinnati, which is on Embassy Row on Massachusetts Avenue, not too far from my house, to do research, because they have a fantastic library, like the library here. Uh, and, but usually, when I go in and I sign in in the morning, the last person to have signed in before me is me, because <laughs> it's not overused. Well, one day. And I think it was maybe January 2016, I went in and I saw that the previous day, there had been somebody there from King's College, London, from the Royal Household, and from Windsor Castle. And so I said to Ellen Clark, the librarian, you had visitors from Britain here yesterday. And she said, yeah, they were here because uh, there's this effort to digitize the Georgian papers. They've got a project underway. They're looking for American partners. They've got William and Mary lined up the Omohandra Institute there. And, um, you know, they're going to open it up in some fashion as they're digitizing it. So I, I you know, went home that afternoon and emailed uh, Karen Wolf, the head of the Omohandra Institute, who is their American partner, and said, you don't know me, but this is what I'm doing. And, uh, she, and uh, she replied instantly, do you want to go to Windsor? I said, yes, please. <laughs> and she's the gatekeeper, you know. They allow one scholar at a time in. And uh, she said, when do you want to go? And I said, well, it's January. How about April? April in England is better than March. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the next thing I know, I'm in Windsor. And, uh, it happened to be the month the queen turned 90. Her birthday is April 23rd, something like that. And uh, by tradition, she always spends the month after Easter at Windsor. And uh, so the place is very lovely. The queen's not much of a social butterfly these days. But nevertheless, the word went around on her birthday that the queen is going to do a walk around in downtown Windsor. And, uh, so I went down the 21 wooden stairs and the 102 stone stairs, and I saw the royal librarian, the wonderful Oliver Urquhart Irvine. 
who was in charge of the digitization pro process of the Georgian papers. And I said, Oliver, the irony is not lost to me that I'm leaving my post, researching the American Revolution, to go out on the streets of Windsor with my Union Jack and sing Happy Birthday, Your Majesty, <laughs> which I did. Um, so the, the hoops were relatively minor. Again, it's serendipity. They were wonderful. They've offered, you know, they said, come back whenever you want, and I'm going to. Uh, I, I know you principally work with uh, archival collections, obviously, because you're a historian, journalist, all that fun stuff. Uh, but do you ever consult on your like archaeological collections? I'm just asking because I'm an archaeologist at heart. Oh, are there collections I should be consulting? Archaeology. Archaeology collections. Well, in a sense, I was in Charleston last week, and um, the director of the Charleston, the really great Charleston Museum, who is uh, a historian and has written the best book very fine book on the siege uh, of Charleston in the spring of 1780 when the American army is trapped and destroyed. 5,500 men uh, killed or captured. And uh, he gave me a tour around the siege lines. Uh, yeah, it was very cool. Uh, and uh, so they've done a lot of archaeological you know, efforts to to understand it, it runs, as you might imagine, through neighborhoods in Charleston. It's, it's difficult. Uh, but in that sense, I, I, I do. Um, and uh, you know, I'm always interested in what is dug up anywhere having to do with, you know, with that period. Unfortunately, a very uh, narrowed question. Uh, during the American Revolution, what effect, if any, did the French Navy have on the supplies coming from, uh, to, the, to, the, to, to the British? Um, the French Navy was, a, needless to say, a big thorn in the side of the British Navy. Uh, the French in general, of course, you know the story, the French are assisting us secretly. Benjamin Franklin is trying to make that assistance overt. But the king uh, has authorized secret supplies uh, through the playwright Beaumarchais, who wrote The Marriage of Figaro, among other things, one of the great characters of French history in the 18th century. And Beaumarchais has set up a phony company in Paris. And uh, the, the French military is supplying uh, surplus muskets and all kinds of armaments that are beginning to make their way here. And then when the Battle of Saratoga is won in the fall of 1777, the French will come in overtly. And they will send uh, a, a portion of the French Navy here, uh, along with French uh, ground troops. Um, the, the, the British, who have had trouble in the way that I described, uh, are now going to have even more trouble. And it's not just because the French uh, intercept supply ships and victuallers and occasionally a troop ship uh, coming across, but it's because now the battlefield has really begun to widen. And it will become global. So um, what do those European powers care about most in the new world? Is it 
the American colonies? Is it Canada? Is it fur trade? No, it's sugar. Sugar, white gold. And so when the French come in, there's going to be a lot of uh, skirmishing, going to be naval battles. It goes back and forth. It's going to go back and forth really until uh, 1783. Uh, and that causes uh, the British to have to divert part of their naval strength. It forces the uh, uh, British commander-in-chief at the time, General Clinton. He's ordered from London to send part of his army to the West Indies. Um, so it gets a lot more complicated. And eventually, we're going to see the French and Spanish navies off the southern coast of England an armada, it is an armada, it's a big fleet, waiting to invade England. That's the plan. Now, it doesn't work. It's not quite as catastrophic as the Spanish armada in 1588, but it turns bad for them, mainly because of sickness. They have thousands of sailors who die. Uh, all of this complicates Britain's efforts to uh, supply the force that's in North America. Uh, it complicates everything about their uh, war uh, strategy and ambitions. Um, so the French are the, they're the essential component in victory. Uh, without the French, you know, we may not still be speaking with British accents, but the, the war doesn't end effectively in 1781 with Yorktown. It's the French Navy that of course, bottles up the, the British Army uh, in, in uh, southeastern Virginia. So the French Navy is critical. Ladies and gentlemen, we have time for one more question, but I will say before we start getting into the uh, final comments and such, uh, we do ask everybody, please keep your seats until after uh, the program is completely over and I release you for safety reasons. We have a lot of people. So we'll have one more question, then please keep your seats until uh, we release you at the end of the program. Thank you. Sir, during the past 18 years, I'm sure being embedded as a reporter, you saw a large number of civilians uh, civil servants augmenting the different mission sets of the regular army uh, forward. In your research of the revolution, obviously not as, as uh, uh, organized as an event today, did you find uh, elements of civil service that were starting to manifest themselves embedding or augmenting the uniform military mission that early? Oh, sure. Uh, they're not civil service, obviously, because that's a 19th century invention, but... Um, you know, when Washington shows up to take command of the Continental Army in early July of 1775, he has no staff. He has a couple of aides, but he has to basically be his own quartermaster general, his own clothier general, his own intelligence chief, um, his own uh, wagon master general. Um, those positions will be filled, ultimately, and there will be a staff. It's of varying quality. Um, many of them are out to make money. Uh, but a, a lot of them are, are civilians, uh, particularly uh, down in the, uh, out in the region. Uh, so if you are the, um, if you're the quartermaster, you've got agents all over the colonies. And those agents uh, frequently are civilians. And there are uh, 
civil servants, quote unquote, there are civilians in the camps all the time when uh, wherever the camp is, Washington's very peripatetic during the war, so the camp moves a lot, and there are lots of civilians around doing various jobs. Some of them are simply running shops. They're, you know, they're um, there to help uh, pro provide provisions to the, uh, to the headquarters camp and then whatever portion of the army is there with them. Um, there are spies. Washington um, is he's pretty good at intelligence. He knows the importance of intelligence. It's, uh, and he's got, uh, he's running his own spy network, including civilians. Uh, now, of course, the most famous of those spies is not a civilian. He's an army captain named Nathan Hale. I think that taught Washington something about the need for uh, someone who knew what they were doing, which Nathan Hale did not, <laughs> uh, and got himself hanged for it. Uh, but, so yeah, there's a pretty substantial coming and going of civilians within the military construct. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.